welcome. You've arrived at Rockademia U. Where the garage ends, Beethoven rolls over, and the ivory tower hits the street. I'm J.B. Pariah, and today I've gone back in time to August 28, 1964, the Delmonico Hotel in New York. Less than one year after Kennedy's assassination, and less than two years after the Cuban Missile Crisis, America is being invaded. Not by the communists, but by the Brits, a frenemy we thought we'd expelled back in 1781. Only this time, they come with mop tops, colorless suits, electric guitars, and Ringo for fife and drums. It's been a hard day's night And I've been working like a dog It's been a hard day's night I should be sleeping like a log But when I get home to you I find the things that you do Will make me feel What's at stake should America lose this time around is evident on the sidewalks below the hotel. It's a Friday, and according to a newspaper account, more than a thousand screaming girls are standing behind police barricades on the east side of the avenue, shrieking like starlings as 40 foot patrolmen and a dozen mounted police struggle to keep order. Now, on an earlier day, such shrieking, along with hair pulling, weeping, writhing, eye rolling, chanting, frothing at the mouth, and fainting, would have been attributed to witchcraft and sorcery. And there's no question the trials would have been held. Witnesses called and the Pied Pipers of devil worship hung from the highest gallows. But in 1964, science has triumphed over superstition in much of America, and the affliction besetting these hysterical teen angels has been identified, categorized, and defined. It's called Beatlemania. And its perpetrators are holed up in an upper-level suite with a special emissary of America who's come all the way from Woodstock to meet with them. I give her all my love That's all I do And if you saw my love Now if a radio is on in the background, odds are it's playing a song from the Hard Day's Night soundtrack. Or if not that, a tune from Brit Beatle knockoffs like The Animals, The Dave Clark Five, Jerry and the Pacemakers, The Hollies, Herman's Hermits, or God forbid, Freddie and the Dreamers. And it's a certainty that whatever airplay can be squeezed between tunes from this swarm of clean-cut kids who may or may not have been to college, too, will go to more of the same from the star-spangled side of the pond. In 1964, the top five non-Brit hits are Roy Orbison's Pretty Woman, The Supremes' Baby Love, The Beach Boys' I Get Around, Bobby Benton's There, I've Said It Again, and The Dixie Cup's Chapel of Love. Now, there's certainly nothing wrong with any of these tunes or the groups that top the charts with them, especially if an endless loop of three-minute songs about love, romance, and love lost are your thing. Nor is there anything wrong with candy floss. But what's fine in modest proportions can be reason to duck and cover if modest turns to excess and stale formulaic music rules the air. On Friday, August 28, 1964, there was only one artist with a stature and chutzpah to keep America from being turned back into the vapid pop wasteland that emerged when Buddy Holly, Richie Valens, and the Big Bopper went down in an Iowa cornfield, Little Richard got religion, Chuck Berry got jailed, and Elvis joined the army. And that artist, the wicked messenger, the drifter, the joker man with three chords and the truth, was Bob Dylan. 
Crimson flames tied through my ears Rolling high and mighty traps Pounced with fire on flaming roads Using ideas as my maps We'll meet on edges soon, said I Proud Now just a few weeks earlier, on August 8th, he released another side of Bob Dylan. In this his fourth album, he turned away from the finger-pointing broadsides that had made him the king of protest folk, telling the journalist Nat Henoff that from now on he wanted to write from inside himself. In other words, art for art's sake. This album had 11 acoustic tunes, including some that became classics such as Chimes of Freedom, My Back Pages, and It Ain't Me, Babe, to name just a few. But not a one was on that radio in the background. Nor did a single one have that staple of pop songs from the Brill Building, the middle eight. They were simply verse and tagline or verse and chorus. Simplicity itself because the folk tradition he was coming from was just that. A few chords and the truth was all you needed. But the Beatles were less about truth and more about entertainment. Well, they shared Dylan's love of the raw simplicity of rock and roll and rhythm and blues. They came not to bury Tin Pan Alley songcraft, but to electrify it. And judging by the fact that in 1964 they had 15 million selling songs in America alone, they were doing a hell of a job of it. So what could the king of folk offer the usurpers of Elvis's throne? That tip of the English spear come to retake America by the consent of the ungovernable baby boomers, with their ears tuned to their transistor radios and their eyes on Ed Sullivan. Well, it would have been easy to break bread with them, in 1964, the minimum wage was $125 an hour, the average income was just over $7K, and bread was just $0.21 cents a loaf. The wine to wash it down with would have been a pittance to someone like Dylan who was just raking it in by that time. But according to all accounts, including those of the Beatles themselves, Mr. Tambourine Man had something else in mind. For he'd homed in on a few choice words in the middle eight, also called the bridge, of the song that shook America awake from its stupor. Let's listen in, and I'll tell you when we get to the middle eight. Oh, yeah, i tell you something I think you'll understand And i say that something Coming up to the middle eight. Notice how the melody line changes. Now we turn to the original melody before going on to the middle eight or the bridge again. I think you'll understand. Yeah. 
inside It's such a feeling that my love What was that something the King of Folk came bearing to that well-appointed suite in the Delmonico Hotel with shrieking girls on the streets below? Well, let's read an excerpt from Peter Brown's book, The Love You Make. After being introduced to the Fab Four by a mutual friend, the writer Al Aronowitz, and waiting till Mel Evans was dispatched to fetch some cheap wine, Dylan suggested they have a smoke of a special kind of substance he presumed they knew all about because of that middle eight. Quote, Brian and the Beatles looked at each other apprehensively. We've never smoked marijuana before, Epstein finally admitted. Dylan looked disbelievingly from face to face. But what about your song, he asked. The one about getting high. The Beatles were stupefied. Which song, John managed to ask. Dylan said, you know, and then he sang. And when I touch you, I get high, I get high. John flushed with embarrassment. Those aren't the words, he admitted. The words are, I can't hide, I can't hide, I can't hide. Now those of you from the CD generation might be baffled by this misinterpretation. But those of us who come from the record and transistor radio generation know it was really tough to make out the words back then. As a matter of fact, years ago, Saturday Night Live had a funny bit about how Charles Manson heard Helter Skelter on CD and had a sudden revelation that it was a song about a children's slide instead of a call to bring down the pig establishment. Too late to save Sharon Tate and the others, though. Moving along, how ironic that Dylan, of all people, would get the message wrong. Nonetheless, after the room was secured, he rolled the first joint and passed it on to Lennon, who immediately gave it to Ringo, whom he called his royal taster, quote-unquote. Not realizing that convention called for him to pass it along, Ringo finished the joint and Dylan and Aronowitz rolled more for each of the Liverpool lads. And take me disappearing through the smoke rings of my mind Down the foggy ruins of time Far past the frozen leaves The haunted frightened trees Out to the windy beach Far from the twisted reach of crazy sorrow Yes, to dance beneath the diamond sky With one hand waving free Silhouetted by the sea Circled by the circus sands With all memory and fate Driven deep beneath the waves Let me forget about today Until tomorrow Hey, Mr. Time Marine Man Play a song for me I'm not sleepy, and there is no place I'm going to. Hey, Mr. Tambourine Man, play a song for me. In the jingle jangle morning, I come following you. By August 1964, Dylan was a veritable pot veteran, of course. According to Larry Jaffe in High Times, that Bible of potheads, Dylan has said in interviews that he can't remember who turned him on to pot the first time. 
All he knows is that weed was plentiful in Dinkytown, the bohemian Minneapolis coffee house scene that he frequented circa 1960. According to Eric von Schmidt, an early 60s contemporary of Dylan's in the Cambridge folk scene, where he, Dylan, and singing pal Richard Farina usually got together, quote-unquote, a lot of pot was smoked. You might recall Rick von Schmidt from being referenced in Baby Let Me Follow You Down off of Dylan's first record. And as to Dylan's stated view on pot, hash, and opium at that time, in an interview with Playboy in 1963, he had this to say, quote, Now these things aren't drugs, they just bend your mind a little. I think everybody's mind should be bent once in a while. And of course, three years later, in Blonde on Blonde, he was singing, Everybody Must Get Stoned. But for now, he was just concentrating on the Beatles, looking on in amusement as they spent the next few hours in that jingle-jangle place beyond the twisted reach of crazy sorrow. I'm so high I'm on the ceiling, Epstein declared repeatedly. And that's high, not hide. I'm up on the ceiling. Meanwhile, McCartney, apparently having an out-of-body experience, declared to anyone who listened, I'm thinking for the first time, really thinking. Now, if that's not a good reason for legalizing pot, I don't know what is. Meanwhile, he instructed Mel Evans to follow him around the hotel suite with a notebook, writing down everything he said, which is a good reason not to legalize it. Again from the horse's mouth, as described in Peter Brown's The Love You Make. I remember asking Mel, our road manager, for what seemed like years and years, have you got a pencil? But of course everyone was so stoned they couldn't produce a pencil, let alone a combination of pencil and paper. I'd been going through this thing of levels during the evening, and at each level I'd meet all these people again. Ha 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 ha, it's you! And then I'd metamorphose onto another level. Anyway, Mel gave me this slip of paper in the morning, and written on it was, There are seven levels! Actually, it wasn't bad. Not bad for an amateur. And we pissed ourselves laughing. I mean, what the fuck's that? What the fuck are the seven levels? But looking back, it's actually a pretty succinct comment. It ties in with a lot of major religions, but I didn't know it back then. Quote, unquote. Hmm, he could be referring to the seven pillars of wisdom in Islam, or maybe Dante's Inferno or Seventh Heaven. Or on the other hand, he could just as easily be referring to the seven levels of a parking garage or the seventh mother of the second son. But whatever... It's clear that Dylan and the Beatles were having a grand old time up there in the Delmonico Hotel, far removed from the realities of the world down below. And what were those realities? Well, just that very day, while they were blowing weed, there were race riots over in Philly. And in June, three civil rights workers had gone missing an old miss, never to be seen alive again. Martin Luther King won the Nobel Peace Prize that year, Congress enacted civil rights legislation, and President Johnson signed a Medicare bill that launched the Great Society. Meanwhile, Rachel Carson's The Silent Spring was sounding the ecological alarm, and the success of the sexually explicit book Candy in the first topless bar was signals of a shift towards the playboy ethic of make love, not war. Speaking of which, war specifically, just earlier that month, on August 7th, the U.S. Congress passed the Gulf of Tonkin Resolution in response to an incident a few days earlier in which North Vietnamese gunboats allegedly fired on the U.S. destroyer in the Gulf, an incident now widely discredited. That resolution would lead to half a million soldiers being deployed to Vietnam and 50,000-plus returning in body bags, not to mention the thousands of others maimed either psychologically or physically. Something was definitely happening in America 
nobody knew what it was. But something is happening and you don't know what it is. Do you, Mr. Jones? But now it's time for some post hoc ergo propter hoc. That's Latin for a logical fallacy that goes, quote, after this, therefore, because of this, unquote. An example? On August 22, 1791, the slaves of the French colony of Saint-Dominique of Haiti revolted and threw the colony into civil war, seeking revenge on their masters through, quote, pillage, rape, torture, mutilation, and death, unquote, according to scholars Censor and Hunt. And ever since then, according to Christian telemonger Pat Robertson, among others, Haiti has been cursed by God, the recent earthquake being the latest example of his disfavor. But now let's apply the post hoc ergo propter hoc reasoning to the momentous face-to-face between those kings of different domains. The King of Folk has just released another side of Bob Dylan, the Kings of Pop, A Hard Day's Night. Dylan's Ovra is folky acoustic with wide-ranging themes but no middle eights and no hits. The Beatles is pop rock and ballads with mostly bubblegum themes, middle eights to spare, and more hits than a mafia don. Dylan, perhaps having sensed the future when he heard on his car radio the animals' electric and electrifying version of the song he'd done a folky version of on his first record, House of the Rising Sun, was in need of some chart cred. And to do that, he needed to go younger, something he signaled with the refrain of My Back Pages off of another side. And I was so much older then, I'm younger than that now. Meanwhile, the Beatles, having climbed the Billboard charts with songs that, in Lennon's words, were written for the meat market, were in need of street cred. The times they were a-changing and they had to start swimming lest they sink like a stone. Having done dope together at the crossroads, the kings of pop went their way and the king of folk went his. But a cross-pollinization had occurred, and the world of pop music was soon to be put in high spin. You say you told me that you want to hold me, but you know you're not that strong. I just can't do what I've done before. I just can't beg you anymore. I'm going to let you. Now, Sean Lennon, the son of John and Yoko, has written this, quote, The trap I get caught up in from time to time is that wretched feeling when Beatles music is compared to Dylan's art. The notion that the Beatles only started serious songwriting after they were inspired by Dope and Dylan is so damn silly that it still provokes a response, unquote. Yet while it's obviously fallacious and reductionist to attribute the changing songcraft of Dylan and the Beatles to a single event, he thinks it's reasonable to say that there's a high correlation if not a smoking gun cause and effect. In any event, let's look at what happened in the next two years. In March of 65, Dylan dips his toe into electric with half of bringing it all back home. In June, the Birds cover Mr. Tambourine Man gives him his first number one hit, 
and in August he shocks the Newport Folk Festival by showing up with a rock band, rock and roll being a dream he'd harbored ever since he was a hibbing teenager. Meanwhile, the Beatles follow up A Hard Day's Night with Beatles for Sale, and in the summer of 1965, they put out another soundtrack, Help. At that time, in the words of John Lennon, quote, The Beatles had gone beyond comprehension. We were smoking marijuana for breakfast. We were well into marijuana, and nobody could communicate with us because we were just glazed eyes, giggling all the time, unquote. Now, if you look at the song list from these two albums, they're most of the same old songs about love's labors and love's labors lost. But check out this medley of John Lennon tunes. I'm a loser, and I'm not what I appear to be. Of all the love I have won or have lost, there is one love I should never have crossed. She was a girl in a million, my friend. Should have known she would win in the end. I'm a loser, and I lost someone who's near to me. I'm a loser, and I'm not what I appear to be. Help, I need somebody. Help, not just anybody. Help, you know I need someone. So much younger than today I never needed anybody's help in any way But now these days are gone I'm not so self-assured Now I find a change of mind I'll open up the doors to the wall If she's gone I can't go on Feeling too foot small Everywhere people stare Each and every day I can see them laugh at me And I hear them say So what's the significance of these songs? Well, they show a movement towards song as personal revelation, subjective instead of objective, a movement inspired by Dylan. Here's Sean talking about his old man. Quote, he said that Bob Dylan taught him to write in the first person about his real life. Unquote. And here's John Lennon himself as quoted by his biographer, Philip Norman, in his book, John Lennon, The Life. Quote, I had a sort of professional attitude to writing pop songs. Paul and I would turn out a certain style of song for a single. I'd have a separate songwriting John Lennon who wrote songs for the meat market, and I didn't consider them to have any depth at all. To express myself, I would write in his own right, the personal stories which were expressive of my personal emotions. Then I started being me about the songs, 
not writing them objectively, but subjectively, unquote. But if Lennon was open in saying he and the Beatles learned from Dylan, he was equally open in saying it was a two-way street. Quote, he learned from us, too, unquote. And that brings me back to the middle eight. Now, in musical terms, the middle eight refers to a section of the song which has a significantly different melody from the rest of it. It's called that because it occurs in the middle of the song and usually lasts for about eight bars. Many classic pop songs go verse of eight bars, chorus of eight bars, and a middle eight of eight bars, or some variation of that. They're used for things like adding contrast to the main melody, generating energy, and transitioning, hence the alternative term bridge. Think I want to hold your hand again. Now that formula dominated American songwriting from the 30s and 40s right up until the heyday of the Beatles and the British invasion. And who broke the mold? None other than the king of folk himself. In August of 1965, just one year after that eventful meeting in the Delmonico Hotel, Dylan released his first full rock album, the classic Highway 61 Revisited. And its signature song was the six-minute rant that Rolling Stone deems the greatest rock song of all time. The trouble was, pop radio back then had a time limit on songs of about three minutes. Something had to give. And what gave was the strict limit helped in no small measure by the rise of FM radio as a competitor. Now a song could go past that artificial barrier and wasn't so bound to follow the middle eight formula either. Yet ironically, with the release of Blonde on Blonde in May of 1966, a quintessential nonconformist who once stood in front of a sign with Joan Baez had said to protest against the rising tide of conformity was doing the Beatles' middle eight thing on a number of the tunes. To add further irony, although his success and that of Mr. Tambourine Man by the Birds had helped open the airways for singles on a wider range of topics, the singles off of Blonde on Blonde, except for Rainy Day Women, dealt with love and lust, albeit not of the teen variety. Let's listen to a couple with the middle eight in it. Take a size, the lonesome old grinder cries. The silver saxophones say, I should refuse you. The cracked bells and washed out horns blow into my face with scorn. But it's not that way I wasn't born to lose you. I want you, I want you, I want you so bad. Honey, I want you. Here's the second verse and chorus, the I Want You, followed by the middle eight. Upon the street where mothers weep, and the saviors who are fast asleep, they wait for you. And I wait for them to interrupt me drinking from my broken cup, and ask me to open up the gate for you. I want you, I want you, yes, I want you so They've gone down to love, they've been without it. 
Now Dylan has said that the point of some of his songs could be boiled down to just a line. And I'd say that I Want You exemplifies just that. What means here is the monomaniacal desire in the line I Want You, not the arresting cast of characters populating the verses. But now let's turn our attention to another single from that album, which also uses the middle eight. We'll pick it up from the second verse. Queen Mary, she's my friend. Yes, I believe I go see her again. Nobody has to guess that baby can't be blessed till she finally sees that she's like all the rest with her fog, her amphetamine, and her pearls. She takes just like a woman. Yes, she makes love just like a woman. Yes, she does, and she aches just like a woman. But she breaks just like a little girl. And here comes the middle eight after the second verse, same as I want you. It was rain from the first, and I was dying there first, so I came in here. Add absolutely sweet Marie and most likely you go your way to the mix and you had the makings of a middle eight master. A proficiency Dylan would go on to show sporadically in Nashville Skyline, Planet Waves, and other albums. The cross-pollinization of Dylan and the Beatles went beyond the pot-sharing encounter, though. Time, health, and circumstance willing, perhaps we'll explore that. But for now, enough said. Here's hoping you tune in and turn on before dropping out. You've been listening to Dylan, the Beatles, and the Middle Eight, a soul production of my Rockademia U, All Wrongs Righted, All Rights Reserved, me, J.B.